So the question I hope that we can answer this morning is this. What structures best allow the church to fulfill God's mission for her? What structures best allow the church to fulfill God's mission for her? Now, there might be some, some here who would object to that question at all, or at least how I phrased it, right? The, the objection in your head might run something like this. It might be, you know, we talk all the time about how the church is a family. Like, why can't we just be a family? Why do we need a structure? Or maybe you're thinking, you know, if, if we simply were to listen to God's voice, listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, then, then things would work themselves out. And, and I don't want to minimize either of those thoughts at all. Um, I believe that we absolutely are a family. I would simply contend that even families have roles and structures in them. Um, Sam and I aren't going to ask our boys to manage our budget, um, or we would have lots more bubbles and granola bars than we need. Um, families have structures, and, and absolutely we should listen to God's voice, and I will even agree that there are certainly times where we allow systems or structures to get in the way of us simply stopping and listening, um, being open to what God is saying. However, we believe that the most reliable record of God's voice is found in the pages of Scripture, and I believe that the Scriptures paint for us some ways of organizing the church that are healthy, that are helpful. And more generally, to this idea, you know, why do we need a structure? Why would we think that God is opposed to structure? Let me read a a, a short passage for you from Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. That, to me, if you've read Genesis chapter 1, you know that's one small part of the order, of the structure that God built into the universe when he created everything. And that, to me, sounds like a God who likes order and structure. And so if you'll allow the idea that perhaps there are some structures that are healthy for the church, again, we return to the question that we hope to answer this morning. What are those? What structures best allow the church to fulfill God's mission for her? And again, before we get too much further, I want to say two things that I'm not going to be proposing this morning as we dig in. The first thing that I'm not trying to say this morning is that Church of the City's exact structure is the only one which is the least bit faithful to the scriptures. Is that me? I don't think that's my phone. Shouldn't. Hopefully it's not. Um, Our exact structure Uh, We live, we know this, we live in a different time and place and culture than the first century church, and our structure at Church of the City is certainly an attempt to be faithful to the biblical witness in Guelph in 2022, but other churches, other denominations, other traditions are, have, and are continuing to make faithful attempts like to do the same right? And they've arrived at slightly different structures than we have. So I'm not trying to contend this morning that Church of the City is the only one that even, you know, reads the Bible um, and tries to set up a, a structure in our church that's faithful to the scriptures. But I'm also not contending this morning on the other side of the spectrum that all ways of structuring the church are equally valid. That really what matters is just that you have a structure. As long as you do, that's what counts. Sadly, we see examples far too often of toxic structures and systems in the church. Um, Yeah, all too often, as I said. And 
the, the bad fruit that can result from that. So we're not saying that we at Church of the City are the only ones that have this figured out or even trying, but I'm also not saying that all systems are equally faithful to the scriptures. Um, there's certainly a spectrum there. We're doing our best to be faithful to the picture that we see in the New Testament. I hope that's helpful and not more confusing. But last thing as we dive in, structures could cover a lot of different things, right? You, you could almost say that this whole series uh, called The Bride has been talking about various structures in the church. So, so what exactly are we talking about this morning specifically? This morning we're going to talk about what I believe are three essential pillars uh, for the church to thrive, to be faithful in this mission that God's given us. Three essential structures, and those are members, elders, and deacons. Members, elders, and deacons, and we'll talk about each of these in turn. Okay, let's begin with members or membership. There are two senses which we could understand membership in the church. The one is in sort of the church universal, big C church. Paul says to a church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 3, he says, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are adopted into the family of God. You are a member of the church. But there's another understanding of being a member of a church, and it's being a member of a local expression of that universal church. Uh, being a member of something that's taking place in a particular time and place. Now, again, there may be objections in some people's minds. You might be thinking, if you've, if you've spent some time in the New Testament, you might be thinking, hang on, I know that there are no passages in the scriptures that explicitly tell me, you know, you must sign somewhere and become a member of a local church. And that is true, um, but I would, again, contend that there are many things that we believe as followers of Jesus that are not spelled out as explicitly as we would like somewhere, chapter and verse, and yet we believe them to be true because as we look at the cohesive picture that the scriptures present, those ideas, those beliefs, those doctrines emerge, and I believe that membership is one of those beliefs, one of those things that when we hold certainly the New Testament together, we can see that emerging. Let's consider the passage that I just read for us. 1 Peter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 to 3 right now. Peter is writing to a group of elders, as he says. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, we'll speak about elders in a moment, but what, we, what I want us to notice in these verses in this moment is that Peter's charge to elders here assumes that they have a specific group of believers whom they are responsible for. Not domineering over those in your charge, he writes. And membership is a crucial way for those in a congregation and those in leadership over a congregation to clarify that commitment to one another. And we could talk for, I mean, I could talk for hours about lots of things, but I could talk for many hours about membership and all that it signifies, but to simply hit a few high points. I believe that membership in a local church signifies a number of things. One, that you believe in the same vision that we do. 
You know, Sam said it this morning, we say it every time we're gathered together. You know, we desire that our communities would look more like heaven so that every person has a relationship with Jesus. By becoming a member, you're saying, yes, I am in for that. I, I will sweat and bleed for that vision. I am in for it. It signifies that you're willing to submit to the care and shepherding of Church of the City's leadership. Membership signifies that you can live within our statement of faith. And notice I don't say that you believe our statement of faith down to every I and T. I don't believe that that's necessary for mem- membership in a local church. Certainly we need to agree on essentials, um, but can you live within that statement of faith and submit to it and do ministry within it? And then sort of the other way, because membership is very much a two-way street in a local church, membership signifies that the elders are committed to you, to your growth and flourishing as a whole person in body, mind, and spirit. In that, though we take this responsibility soberly, that we are committed to setting an example for you to follow. Now again, somebody might be thinking, if you're new to Church of the City, we don't actually have this many people always making objections, um, but I just like to respond to sort of, you know, various viewpoints at times. So don't think, wow, there's lots of people who object in this church. Um, Spencer's talking about them all here, um, but I'm simply using these as examples. Um, there are people at times who would say, hang on a second, I can do all of those things that you just said, Spencer. I can believe in the same vision as Church of the City. I can submit to the care and shepherding of the leadership. I can live within the statement of faith, and I can do all those things without signing my name on a piece of paper. Why are you asking this unnecessary formality of me? And I would simply leave it with this example for you to consider. Many couples today would make the argument, we can be just as committed to each other as any married couple, and we do not need to go through all the rigmarole of a wedding ceremony and getting an officiant and signing our names on a piece of paper. Like, we're committed to one another. But those of us who believe in the significance of marriage would say that the formal aspect of that, sure, you can call it signing your name on a piece of paper, but the, the formal aspect, that commitment, formalizing that matters. It's significant. It's saying to one another and to the world that you are tied together. And I believe that the same can be said of membership. So membership is an important foundation for life in a local church. But I think you'd agree with me that by itself, it's not much of a structure, right? We would still be left with questions like, okay, well, but then how are decisions made? And, and who takes on various responsibilities and tasks? How, how, how does all of that work? And again, thankfully, I believe the New Testament paints a picture for us. And the picture that the New Testament paints is this. It's of local churches made up of committed members who are led by elders and deacons. Local churches made up of committed members who are led by elders and deacons. These two terms that we mentioned at the beginning and we're circling back to now, elders and deacons, um, if we were to get sort of uh, all theological, we would call these church offices. And we believe that there are two. Different traditions might call these different things, or some would even say that there's more than two, but we believe that there are simply these two offices, elders and deacons. So let's talk about these now. It's difficult to summarize the role of elders in a sentence. In fact, I am hesitant to do it, but I'm, I, I've done it. The slide is made. I cannot go back now. Um, so here's my attempt to summarize the role of elders. This is a long definition, but then we'll break it apart into its pieces. Elders are a group 
of biblically qualified men who serve the congregation as under-shepherds to Jesus and are accountable to God for the health and faithfulness of a local church. As I said, that's, that's a long definition, so let's, let's look at its parts. Elders, first of all, are a group. We'll sometimes use the word plurality. At the end of Paul's first missionary journey, as told to us in the book of Acts, it says this, in Acts 14, 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. I don't think there's a slide for this, so I'm going to read this portion of this again. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, notice plural, elders, singular church, every church needing a plurality of elders. And sadly, we see the, the fruit of when this is not followed in church structures where one person is invested with too much power and authority and not enough accountability and, and terrible things can result at times. Elders are a group of biblically qualified men. What do we mean when we say biblically qualified? There are three passages that really speak to the qualifications for elders in the local church. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5. And we could do a whole series on these qualifications. So to summarize, and I'll I'll borrow from Strauch's book, Biblical Eldership here, he says that we see three categories emerge in these three passages. Character, ability, and motivation. Character, ability, and motivation. These three categories for, for qualifications for an elder. And character in both Timothy and Titus is summarized as that they're above reproach. That they're above reproach. But I want to highlight one additional uh, character qualification that's made in these two books. Their elders are said that they, they should be hospitable people. And I, we, we would say the sort of shorthand des- definition for hospitality is making a stranger a friend. Um, and it's certainly more than, than hosting. Sometimes people just equate hospitality and hosting. But I think opening your home is certainly a key piece of hospitality. And I love the fact that uh, the group of elders at Church of the City are some of the most hospitable people that I know. I, I think if you've been around Church of the City for any length of time, it's, I would go so far as to say it's probably unlikely that you have not had a meal around the table of an elder in, in our church. And you've got, if they're married, you've gotten to see them with their spouse. If they have kids, you've gotten to see them lead their kids. They've gotten to get to know you and your family and your children if you have them. We're a hospitable bunch, and we would have it no other way, because we love you. <laughs> we love being with you. We like having you over and playing games. I like winning more, but, um, but even if I don't win, I still have fun. Elders are to be above reproach, but hospitality is, is this key part, so, part of that, because then our lives are an open book, and you get to see us. Um, abilities. A number of things are mentioned. Managing their own household well. Living as a godly example. Able to teach. Now, we don't believe that this requires that every elder need to be gifted at giving sermons, but there does need to be an understanding of Christian doctrine and the ability to defend it when required. Lastly, motivation, that third category. And Peter says it quite succinctly in that passage we read, that elders ought not do this for shameful gain, but eagerly. Richard Baxter, this Puritan pastor, he wrote a book to church leaders, and I think he he speaks to this so well. He says, He's writing to church leaders. He says, we must be serious, earnest, and zealous in every part of our work. Our work requireth, Puritan, 
Our work requireth greater skill and especially greater life and zeal than any of us bring to it. It's no small matter to stand up in the face of a congregation and to deliver a message of salvation or damnation as from the living God in the name of the Redeemer. I love that quote because it captures so well the weight of the role of an elder, but also the joy in it. And I feel that every time I stand here and and speak to you on a Sunday morning. We believe that elders are a group of biblically qualified men, as, said, as I said in that definition. We believe this is an example set by Jesus, first with his disciples, gathering a, a group of 12 men around him, and then carried forward by those apostles into the New Testament church. And I said, who served the congregation as under-shepherds to Jesus. Peter says that in the passage we read, that Jesus is the chief shepherd. It's not Matt, it's not the chair of the elders board, Jesus is our chief shepherd. And what did Jesus do? He says this of himself. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so our goal as elders is to lead you by serving you. And finally, that we are accountable to God for the faithfulness of the church. The writer of Hebrews gives this sobering warning in Hebrews 13, 17. He says to the church, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And I think there are the other elders here and, and any who served as an elder in a local church would probably agree with me that at times that keeps you awake a little bit, the, the weight of that statement. So how would we summarize all this? Because I gave a very long definition there and then uh, uh, added to it um, as we looked at each part How would we summarize the role of an elder? Well, really, spiritual leadership is the foundational role of the elders. Everything else that elders do, though important, is secondary to this. Spiritual leadership is the foundational role of the elders. Now, you might be seeing, perhaps for the first time, maybe you didn't really know what the elders do, and and now you're seeing the significance of it for the first time, and you might be asking, wow, like how do we make sure that we get the right people into those roles? And this, friends, we believe is a critical role of members. Because we believe that if you're a member of this church, if you're a follower of Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, then God will lead us in the selection of our elders. And thus it is incumbent upon members to take that role seriously. As you hear of elder candidates, to get to know them when the time comes to affirm them, to be able to do that knowing them well and being able to speak to that. And give your affirmation wholeheartedly. There is lots more we could talk about the role of elders. A great thing, if you like governance and structures, or somebody's probably thinking, somebody likes governance? Like, there are those people? Yes, there are those people. Um, And maybe you're just realizing, wow, I want to understand this better. Um, We have an updated governance policy. Um, And it has diagrams, okay? If you're a visual person, there's some diagrams on there. Um, But I think that it's very succinct and explains all of this, how the church interacts with elders, how elders interact with staff and all of that. And I would highly recommend that document to you if you want to think about this more. But the, the last question sort of that I would pose is, what about when a specific task arises that the elders don't have the resources to tackle, or, or perhaps it requires a certain skill set that none of the elders possess? And this is where deacons come in. To summarize the role of a deacon, a deacon is a man or woman appointed by the elders on behalf of the church to lead a specific ministry or accomplish a specific task. And the passage that best summarizes this 
is Acts chapter 6. We see a great picture of this. Let me read it quickly. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. If you've read the book of Acts, you know that believers, as the church was growing, they were selling possessions and contributing to the church, and then that was being distributed to those who had need. And obviously, a group in the church thought that there was a particular segment that was being missed or not being fairly treated in that distribution. And so the 12, verse 2 says, and the 12, that is the 12 apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Which when you first read that, you're like, wow, that's a little hoity-toity. But what the apostles realized is that they had a unique charge as the ones who most closely lived alongside, ministered alongside Jesus. And they needed to continue to testify to what they had seen and heard in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, They say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And so we, we know here and, and also in First Timothy that there is still a standard expected of deacons. We don't just pull somebody off the street and say, would you be a deacon for us? We need this job done. There's a, a character expectation of these. But because I think this role of deacon is maybe a little bit easier understood, maybe you've not heard this term before, but I think it's a little bit easier to digest, rather than speaking in theoreticals, I want to name a few men and women who fill these roles in our church because this is a role that's easy to sort of fly under the radar. I'll just say that every person I'm about to mention is going to hate me for doing this, um, but I'm doing it anyways, all right? Um, Here are some deacons that serve our church faithfully and well. Uh, Stephen McEwen and Natasha Presley. Stephen leads our uh, facilities team, the group that shows up at 7 a.m. every Sunday morning to get us set up and ready so that when we all arrive, we're able to worship together and things go well and they take down at the end of it. Stephen is here virtually every single Sunday morning at 7 a.m. We don't actually want that to be the case. We're trying to grow our teams, but Stephen is one of those faithful people that will never grumble about it um, if that happens for the rest of his life. Um, Natasha Presley, likewise, leads our Frontlines team, um, those who greet you, make sure you have questions answered. And Natasha isn't here at 7 a.m., but she's generally here pretty soon after with her wife, uh, her husband, and kids in tow. Okay, um, often at 7.30 or 7.45, again, almost every week, Peter has been serving our, uh, in, in leading our tech uh, alongside Sam for years and years. Peter, um, and, and Peter's the guy that gets the call on like Saturday night, you know, where we're like, um, we lost the, the mic or whatever, and Peter's like, oh boy, um, and, and he fixes it, he sorts it out for us. The expertise that Peter brings to his role is, is uh, far beyond anything that I understand. Uh, two more, Brigida Weidman and Nicole Carney. These two women, through their uh, vocations, have much experience in the world of HR, human resources. We call them our deacons of HR because, um, and I'm sorry, I, I know you're probably resenting me for this, Nicole, um, but uh, in, in seasons where we're making a new hire or trying to create a new policy for staff, they have invaluable insights to offer. Matt and I would kind of be scratching our heads like, what should we put in this? And then uh, Brigida and Nicole straighten us out. And I was just saying to them this week, I don't know where we would be without you in some of these processes. I could name 
uh, many more men and women, but these are just a small example of men and women who have unique gifts, and when our church has a unique ministry or need, they have stepped in and served us faithfully and well, and they're a gift to our church. God has brought them to us, and we're grateful for them. A quick final clarification, a question that may have been generated in your mind as we think about these structures. You might be saying, where do pastors fit into all this? So quickly, there is no office of pastor in the New Testament. We believe that there's simply those two, elders and deacons. And so we at Church of the City would use the term pastor as a designation of a man or woman who has chosen ministry as sort of their paid vocation in life. That's how we would use the term pastor. And so within these structures that we've been talking about this morning, a pastor might sometimes be operating in our church in the role of an elder, as Matt and I do, or sometimes in the role of a deacon. Hope that is helpful and not further confusing. So I want to end with this image on the screen. I hope now, maybe if you had no idea when you showed up what the elders do, um, I hope that this, as you spend time at Church of the City, as you get to know us, get to know the elders, that this is the kind of image that you think of. I'm sorry it's hard to see. I'll explain what's happening here. This is called uh, Pastoral Visit, and it's by an artist by, uh, named Richard Norris Brook. And this is a pastor sitting at a table, sharing a meal with a family. Uh, you see the mother and father, the kids there. There's even a cat here in the corner. I don't love cats, but if you have one, I'll pretend to if I get to visit you. Um, and this is what leading in a church is about, friends. And so I hope as you spend time with us, these are the kinds of things you picture. Maybe a time where an elder was with you around your table. Or when you think of deacons, that you think of the men and women that I just mentioned. But ultimately, our hope and our prayer is that as you think about leadership in Church of the City, that ultimately you think about Jesus. We know that we are a pale reflection of who he is and his leadership over us. But we pray that in our small, feeble attempts, our leadership, our serving alongside you, reminds you of him, points you to him, smells like him. And so with that, um, as I always do, I forgot my communion elements. Um, If you do not have elements, maybe you missed them on your way in, you can slip up your hand, and I think uh, Devin is at the back and would be happy to bring some of these to you. Let me quickly read um, from earlier on in this letter that Peter wrote that we've been looking at this morning. This is 1 Peter 2. This won't be on the screen, so just listen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. This is who we are as the church, friends, and I hope this stirs your heart. Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Jesus, as we take communion, we are reminded that once we were not a people, but now we are your people because of the sacrifice of your body and blood. And so as we take the wafer this morning, would you remember Christ's body sacrificed on behalf, on our behalf? And likewise, Jesus, we are reminded that because of your blood, 
Once we had not received mercy, but now we have. 